All right, well, we'll get started. Good morning, everyone. And we'll get started by a word of prayer and we'll dive right into it, huh? Father, we just praise you, especially today, um, that we get to celebrate that Christ is risen, Lord. And by that gift, that amazing gift, we are now made righteous through your sacrifice. Uh, just please give us wisdom as we study your word today, and as always, insight and graciousness as we uh, communicate these truths with others. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, as you guys know, I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis, and I wanted to start off with this today. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection <laughs> from, from Lewis. Um, which is an amazing, amazing testament to see that it is indeed a fact. And we as Christians celebrate the resurrected Christ. But the question is, how do we know? Right? I don't know about you all, but I'm, I have no problem admitting this. Um, faith to me has to pass through my brain first. That's just the way that I'm wired. Once I can understand something and see evidences of it, then it's absolutely solidified uh, in me. If you take the Gospel of Mark, for example, I love it because, okay, here's, I love my professor, Dr. Mobley. He once said that the um, uh, apostles in Mark, he called them dumb bunnies because all the way up in their time with Christ, they just didn't get it, right? And he was like, basically, what is wrong with you people? But after they had witnessed the resurrected Christ, then what happened? They were completely changed, especially in, in Mark's account. Jesus' death by crucifixion is a prerequisite for any consideration of Jesus' of course, resurrection. The crucifixion is easily one of the most secure historical facts of the New Testament, and many reasons account for the scholarly unanimity on this point. His crucifixion is reported in a plethora of independent sources from both Christian and non-Christian authors, scholars, including skeptical ones, mind you, have counted approximately a dozen relevant sources that attest to the occurrence of this event, that Jesus was indeed crucified. It's very rare to find a quote-unquote scholar that will deny that the crucifixion happened. Additionally, crucifixion isn't something that the earliest believers would have invented. Why would they? Think about it. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul highlights this very point, acknowledging that this event is what? A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, that Christ was crucified. According to Deuteronomy 21, Jews believe that those who were hung on a tree, including those that were crucified, were cursed by God. For the Gentiles, of course, it's foolishness to worship a man uh, that suffers such a dishonorable death, normally reserved for the worst criminals. So why would they even include that? It doesn't work for either of their audiences to try and convince them. So what about the most historically substantive claims of truth ever? That is the claim that the truth that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed murdered by crucifixion and walked out of that tomb alive bodily three days after the fact. According to the Christian church, the four gospels were written by apostles and those and or those under the uh, direction and apostles of Christ. They were eyewitnesses of the actual events, these authors. Also, none of the gospels mentioned, know this, not one mentioned the destruction of the Jewish temple that happened in AD 70. That's a rather important event that happened. It's very significant because Jesus had prophesied concerning the temple when he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come 
in which there will be not left one stone upon which the other will be torn down. That's in Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13. If the Gospels had been written after that date, and if they were fabrications, then surely they would have contained the account of the fall of Jerusalem in them. Yet Matthew, Mark, Luke contain absolutely no such information about the fall of Jerusalem. Luke was writing before Acts, if you remember. The book of Acts, which is a history of the Christian church, which doesn't mention the fall of Jerusalem either, nor does it record the deaths of Paul, James, and Peter, which all happened in the early 60s. This means that Acts was written at least by AD 62, and Luke was written before that. Therefore, the time between the events and the writings, it's about 30 years. This further means that the eyewitnesses were around who could have corrected any statements written in the Gospels, but we don't have any corrective or contradictory writings at that time from anyone denying anything in the Gospels. That only comes later. Don't you think that would be an important fact? That if the, the apostles were making these claims in the Gospels, don't you think someone at that time would have written and be like, no, 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 I saw them take out the body or anything like that. We have nothing in history of that fact. But it came later? Oh, yeah, with all the, the Jesus seminar. I'm talking about the you know, 20th century. Oh. Yeah. The Gospels don't have a sense of mythical literature. Um, anyone ever read, like, Homer's Iliad or Plato or anything like that? Okay. So you, you guys understand that there's this, like, theme or this um, way in which myths are written. And the Gospels don't include any of those um, types of writing styles. If anything, they're written as what? Eyewitness accounts. Consider the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, which clearly states that it is a researched document. Luke says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the world, word, sorry, have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That's such a cool introduction. Because Luke, is, he's, he's laying it out. He's like, look, here are eyewitnesses' accounts. We're there. We saw it. We're going to lay it out for you, you know, line by line. And this isn't how myths are made if you're writing a myth. This is how you uncover evidence and you record it. Luke examined the witnesses. He interviewed them and checked out the facts. In Luke 2, we have historically verifiable information. He says this, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Also in Luke 3, he says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, and the tetrarch of Abilene, in the presence and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So we clearly see numerous historical statements from Luke that have been verified by actual archaeology, extra-biblical archaeology, not just stuff written by the New Testament authors. This is extremely precise record-keeping not extravagant additions. In fact, um, an archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, has shown that in making reference to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands, Luke made absolutely zero mistakes in his recordings. 
That's a lot. He's a doctor. <laughs> yes, Walkie, because he was a doctor. <laughs> Extremely precise. So who, <laughs> who was Sir William Ramsey? Well, he, is, he lived from 1851 to 1939, and he was a classical scholar and archaeologist. He taught at Oxford, England, Aberdeen. He authored several scholarly books dealing with archaeology and had a major influence on it as a science. Nevertheless, there are many other verifiable things found in the Gospel accounts. Um, number one, Herod, king of Judea. That is verifiable from archaeology. That's in Matthew 14 and then Luke 1. Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother Philip, in Matthew 14, also verifiable through archaeology. The Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Shalom, etc. And there are many, many more citations verified by archaeology that demonstrate the accuracy of the Gospels. When they mention events detailing with rulers, places, events like a census, um, who was governor, etc., they are all measured up, uh, completely accurate, what we know in history. You guys have heard me go over this before, but maybe for those listening online, I'll go over it a bit. So how do we know what's being recorded in these Gospels is from then, and what we have in our Bibles now is the same thing. How do we know? How do we know that it's accurate? Y'all have played the game of telephone, and I've heard um, that analogy plenty of times that, you know, by the time it, it gets to us, it's completely jumbled and garbled, the original message. Well, number one, um, that's a faulty argument because these are not oral traditions. These are written traditions, so they're very, very different. But let's take a look at some of what we normally historically uh, argue as being verifiable, historically accurate documents, which we teach from today. Plato, date written between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest copy that we have of any of Plato's writings is around 980. So the time span between the original and the earliest copy we have is 1,200 years. How many copies do we have of it? Seven, but we trust it as being an accurate historical document. Caesar on the Gaelic Wars, written between 100 and 44 BC. So, same thing, when did we discover our earliest copy? 980. That puts it as a thousand years between the time it's written and our first copy. How many copies do we have of that? 10. Aristotle, between 384 and 322. There's 1,400 years there, difference, between when we have the original written and when we found it. How many copies? 49. The next one, and the most that they have in history, and they completely trust it as being a very accurate copy, is Homer's Iliad. It was written right around 900 BC, and we have it about 500 years from after it was written to when we discovered it. How many copies do we have of that one? 643. And the accuracy between those copies is 95%. Pretty, pretty darn good, right? Now the New Testament. How, what's the timeline between the original and our earliest copy? It's, it's from the Gospel of John. It's 35 years. From when it was first written to our first known manuscript is 35 years. How many copies do we have of it? 26,000, over 26,000. What's the accuracy? 99.5%. So if you're going to ignore that, then you have to ignore all of the evidence and say, well, I just don't trust the Bible just because I don't want to trust the Bible. You can't say it's science, and you can't use a valid argument in there. Now, Oxford expert in literature and miss C.S. Lewis said this, quote, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this, the Gospels. The Gospels don't read like mythical literature because they aren't. 
So regarding the Gospel of Mark, a date before AD 50 leaves no time for any type of myth embellishment of the records. It just simply doesn't. They would have to be accepted as a historical writing. The first accounts of Jesus, they're just simply too early to give people time to make a myth out of it. New Testament books appeared within the lifetime of eyewitnesses and contemporaries. Luke was written about AD 60. That was only 27 years after Jesus' death. That's quick. And that still doesn't allow time to have a myth entered into there. Before Acts, which was in around 60 to 62, 1 Corinthians was written by 55 to 56, only 22 or 23 years after Jesus' death. Even radical New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson dates basic gospel records between 40 and 60. There's no time or way for a legend to develop while the eyewitnesses were still alive to refute the story. The numerous early accounts of Jesus render any type of mythical explanation virtually impossible. You just can't do it. And there's three main reasons why the empty tomb is a historical fact. I'm going to teach you guys an acronym if you want to remember it. I don't know if you guys are having um, supper with some unsaved folks today for Easter. This would be awesome. Easter conversation. I mean, <laughs> you kind of walk right into it. The acronym is JET. J-E-T. And it stands for the Jerusalem Factor, the Enemy Testimony, and then the Testimony of Women. And this is probably one of the best apologetics or proofs of the empty tomb. So first off, there's the Jerusalem factor, the J. The early Christians began preaching Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. And we know this to be the case due to the numerous references in the Gospels of the preaching in Jerusalem. Book of Acts, Paul's undisputed letters, such as Galatians, where the church is headquartered there. Christianity would have had an extremely difficult time being able to survive in Jerusalem with this apologetic preaching if what? If the body was still in the tomb. You think the Jews wanted this new religion in their city to be preached? If they could have uh, produced the body, done. Completely ended Christianity. Second, there's the enemy testimony. That's the E of Jet. In other words, many early critics of Christianity indirectly presuppose that the tomb was empty. For example, in Matthew 28, the Jews acknowledged the empty tomb by stating that the disciples stole the body. It's in Matthew 28, 12 through 13. They say this, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The disciples bribed the Romans, or not the disciples, sorry, the Jews bribed the Roman centurion to lie and say, Oh, the apostles came and stole the body because they didn't want a resurrected Christ out there. And third, this one is an interesting fact because it's the testimony of women. And not to say that, you know, oh no, the Bible is completely sexist and, you know, no, no, that's not what we're saying. You have to understand scripture wasn't written in a vacuum. We had this conversation with a young lady earlier this week. It's just the culture back then. The women are what? They're the first chief eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Now, due to a lack of respect for women in the first century Jewish culture, it's extremely unlikely that the disciples would have used that if it were a lie to prove the empty tomb. Instead, they would appeal to men as their primary witnesses. Even in the Gospel of Luke, the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus to the women is seen as nonsense to the disciples. That's in chapter 24 of Luke, verses 10 through 11. So here's some interesting quotations regarding of how uh, the first century viewed women. Josephus, he said this, But let not the testimony of women be admitted. 
on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak the truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. What was Josephus saying? He was saying women, women can't be trusted. Can't be trusted. They're, they're irrational, right? The Talmud, which is the Jewish rabbinical writings, what did it say? Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. Also, they are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. <laughs> what else did they say? Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. This is in the Talmud. Now, what's my point in bringing this stuff up? My point is, this is how the disciples were raised. They were raised in this culture. They thought this about the testimony of a woman. Why would they include that women were the first ones to see the resurrected Christ? Because exactly, they had no other choice. It was fact. If they were trying to make up a story, they wouldn't have done it this way. No way, because this actually disproves their story. Because anyone in the Jewish culture at that time saying, wait, what? A woman? No, no, I don't believe it. It's a lie. The Talmud talks about the law better be burned before taught to a woman. And then Paul later on in his epistles saying women should learn. Right, exactly. So due to the Jerusalem factor, the enemy testimony, and the testimony of women, it's quite reasonable to believe that Jesus' tomb was indeed empty on that Sunday morning. And it would only take one thing to completely destroy Christianity. One thing will render the Christian faith worthless. What's that? The body. The corpse of Christ. If they were able to produce that, done. And with good reason that that was the one thing. It's the most bizarre thing Christians believe that turns out to be false. If a brutally crucified man didn't walk from his tomb, if Jesus never rose from the dead, then Paul conceded Christianity will be finished and we, of all people, are most to be pitied. Ben preached on this this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything critical to Christianity is true. If he stayed dead, everything uniquely important about Christianity is false. It's, it's an all-or-nothing thing here, right? We can't have a half-risen Christ, or we can't have a, just a spirit apparition. It doesn't work that way. But is it true? Do we have reason to trust in the resurrection? So, here's three more firmly rooted in history that make the case along with questions that you can use if you're having a Easter supper with some unsaved family. First things first, what's the minimum we'd have to show to verify a resurrection? Well, it seems we'd only need to show that the person was truly dead at one point, right? Absolutely dead, not just fainted, and that he was truly alive later in another point. Truly dead, truly alive. Would that do it? If not, why not? Our strategy is going to focus on these two points, and this is where history is going to help us out. Only three essential facts are needed to make our case that Jesus died, then rose. Here they are. The first one, Jesus was dead and buried. Number two, the tomb was empty. And three, the disciples were transformed. That's it. Nothing all, nothing fancy, no mental gymnastics. That's how we uh, can have those conversations. It's not complicated. So the, tr the critical details about these two facts... Each piece of evidence is about something completely earthly. Nothing supernatural, only natural stuff. A corpse, an empty tomb, and apparent personal encounters and some sort of changing doubters into believers, especially how Mark records them. Second, though, most New Testament scholars don't think that Jesus rose from the dead, 
there's a split decision on that question. On the main, they affirm all three minimal facts. Do you get that? Secular scholars affirm that Jesus died, they affirm that the tomb was empty, and they also affirm that the disciples were changed after the fact. These are guys that don't believe in the resurrection, but they affirm these three facts. Where do we differ? We just differ how that tomb became empty. That's where we differ. So they side with us, the Christians, on the essentials, confirming that the basic evidences themselves are historically reliable. So let's dive into this a little bit more. Jesus was dead and buried. There is literally no academic dispute on this point. No one, no one worth their salt denies that Jesus was dead and buried. They don't deny the crucifixion. It's one of the most uh, recorded events in history. After brutally beating and flogging Jesus, battle-seasoned Roman soldiers executed him on a cross and declared him dead. How? By plunging a spear through his side for good measure. He was then embalmed with 80 pounds of spices wrapped up and sealed in a stone tomb. So basically, on the record, it is reasonable to conclude that Jesus survived this ordeal. What do you guys think? No, that doesn't seem plausible. If not, the first piece of the resurrection puzzle is in place. Jesus was dead, okay? We got everyone to admit that. Yep, he died. Now on to our second piece. Was Jesus alive at a later time? Well, the last two effect, um, facts actually address this concern. Then look at the scene itself. David Strauss, he's a radical um, liberal commentator of 19th century Germany, famously argued that it would be almost unthinkable for someone to believe that Jesus could have somehow survived the crucifixion process, revived in the tomb without medical assistance or sustenance, and rolled away the heavy stone from the tomb entrance, and, of course, overcame the Roman centurion, all after having been severely beaten, thinking that he would have to walk a distance on feet that had just been pierced through with nails, not to mention his side wound, administered to secure his death. What do you think Jesus would have looked like when the disciples first saw him, if that were the case? A zombie, yeah. Just an absolute horrific scene. Would he have appeared as they described him as a fully resurrected, completely intact person with only just evidences of wounds in his wrists and in his feet? No, that is not how he would have appeared. He could have convinced the disciples he was maybe just barely alive, if that were the case, but definitely not that he had conquered the grave and that he was alive forevermore in a newly resurrected body. That part's not possible. In short, he would have been alive, but absolutely not as the resurrected Prince of Life. No way. Had this swoon scenario taken place, and that's what it's called, the swoon theory, if you guys come across it, the disciples would have more likely procured Jesus' uh, physician rather than proclaiming him as the resurrected Christ. If Jesus was barely alive, anyone could quickly tell that he had absolutely not been victoriously resurrected. Without the resurrection, again, there's no Christianity. The swoon or apparent death hypothesis would never have given rise to any type of resurrection teaching. It doesn't work that way. Jesus must truly have been dead for Christianity wouldn't have been birthed from the apparent death or swoon hypothesis. He had to actually die. The next fact, and scholars admit this one, non-biblical scholars, the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. That is a fact. That is a historical fact. It was empty. Nearly three quarters of all scholars agree here. Since the tomb was never disputed by anyone at the time, even the Jews and the Romans, why was Jesus' body never produced to quell this new uh, religion popping up in Jerusalem? Perhaps the corpse, I mean, present the corpse 
and the controversy. Pretty darn simple. So here's the question. Where was the body? Was it stolen? Who stole it? And why? The Jews wanted Jesus dead. So did the Romans. So they're not going to be the ones that steal the body because if they were, they would have just produced it and said, here, look, he's dead. We killed him. But why would they carry off Jesus's corpse? And how would they get past that guard? I've gone into it a little bit before. You guys must understand a Roman centurion is a highly, highly trained regiment of soldiers. It's like our equivalent of having army rangers and Navy SEALs guarding a tomb. These are elite men. These aren't guys that are going to be overtaken by a couple fishermen. Definitely not overtaken by a guy on recently crucified ankles that laid in a tomb without food and water for three days. That's not going to happen with severe blood loss. Yeah, yeah dislocated limbs. I mean, it, it's just it's nonsense to even think of that. The record shows that they did not expect a resurrection anyway, meaning the Jews and Romans. And some resisted the claim when they heard of it, and the disciples had nothing to gain by lying except what? Being beaten, whipped, stoned, crucified, beheaded. That's why almost all historians reject this option that the disciples stole the body, because that doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. The disciples were transformed. Even the most critical scholars in history acknowledge that the disciples proclaimed the resurrection at their peril because they thought they'd encountered the risen Christ. They knew what would happen to these men by claiming the resurrection. Many paid the ultimate Christ a price, including the skeptic James and the former executioner of Christians, Paul, choosing death rather than retraction. James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, was converted after he was sure that he had seen his risen brother, half-brother. There are a number of reasons for scholars' acceptance of this event. James's skepticism is a big one. His attestation of by more than one independent gospel source in Mark, and again in John, further, Mark's gospel is usually viewed as the earliest. Then Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him is obviously another embarrassing fact. Why would you record that? Even his brothers thought he was nuts? That's, we're not making a great case here, folks, for Christianity if we're trying to create a myth. This doesn't work. It was included because it's accurate. Whether we want to talk about it or not, just like Testimony of Women, it's accurate. Given James's prominence in the early church, it's unlikely that his skepticism would have been invented from scratch. Due to his highly counterproductive nature, it's highly counterproductive nature, James became a pillar of the early church in Jerusalem. And Paul records Jesus' appearance to him in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Now, critical scholar Reginald H. Fuller found the arguments surrounding James's conversion to be so strong that he wrote, quote, It might be said that if there were no record of an appearance to James, the Lord's brother in the New Testament, we should have to invent one in order to account for his post-resurrection conversion and rapid advance. Do you get that? He's saying even if Christ hasn't been resurrected because of James being so radically transformed from being a hardcore doubter and skeptic to being, as we use today, on fire for the Lord, we'd have to invent something if it didn't actually happen, because that's the only thing you can use to explain what happened to James. So what did they all see? Whom did they meet with? Did they walk? Or who did they talk and eat with? Some say they imagined or hallucinated the risen Christ. Have you guys heard this one yet? Mass hallucinations, okay. How? Different people at different times and different locations, individually and in groups, all imagining the exact same thing at the same time and having the same hallucination at the same time? Really? Please produce one time in history that that has actually happened. I understand mass hallucinations. But they were all together. Exactly. 
in mass hallucination like events. the Virgin Mary. Right. Or they were all together. And yeah, I saw too. Right. But not when you're not in separate places mm-hmm. and separate times, separate people. So hallucinations like dreams are entirely private experiences. Others can't join you in your sensory delusions. It doesn't happen, especially over and over again with different groups of people. So something else was going on. What was it? And if possibly a hallucination or an imagining of some sort, what about the empty tomb? That's a big, big problem. Now this brings us to our final most important question. What single explanation makes sense of all the historical details of virtually every academic in the field agrees on? The death of Jesus, the empty tomb, and the transformation of the disciples and of the skeptics. What single interpretation accounts for all of these facts? Jesus actually actually rose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he actually rose. Here it is. And it's the answer that Peter gives us. The only answer that fits all the evidence. He says this. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Those who disagree have to solve this problem. What is a better explanation of those three facts? Remember, I'm always trying to say you need to put the burden of proof on the other folks. Do it. Ask him. Here's the facts. Please explain to me how they happened. Established on a powerful historical foundation, how should these events influence the lives of believers today? The resurrection of Christ is not simply a historical reality to be intellectually affirmed. The event has dramatic consequences, existential and practical effects on our lives in both the present and the future. Now here we're going to address a few of these to demonstrate why Christians can live a life that is encouraged and empowered by Jesus' resurrection. So, one critically important aspect of Christ's resurrection is this. Without it, forgiveness of sins would not be a reality. Christianity is done. We have no forgiveness of sins without his resurrection. The forgiveness that Christians received is what? It's based on that gracious act of God through Jesus, what we just heard about from Ben preaching today. Another consequence is that this grace should be likewise extended through us into the lives of other believers. That's in 1 John chapter 4. Another benefit of Christ's resurrection is hope both in this life and in the future. That's huge. Um, We're actually experiencing that right now in our family. My wife's mom has recently passed. Yeah, we'll miss her. We'll miss certain things, her laugh, things like that. But it's only a couple years before we get to see her again, you know? And we absolutely know that. But there's one member of our family, our oldest son, who doesn't. And he's freaking out. He's a train wreck because of this. Because he doesn't have this hope of the resurrected Christ. So he's not going to see his Uma again in his mind. He might if God regenerates him. But in his mind, that's it. It's done. And he doesn't get to see her again. But we're all like, I'll see you in a couple years, Mom. Let's have tacos. Please make your burritos again. Uma's burritos are the bomb. They're so good. So Peter explains that because of the resurrection of Christ, that we are able to rejoice even in the midst of persecution and sorrow. 1 Peter 1. Knowing Peter's own testimony of suffering actually puts teeth to this admonition. But there's even more here. Jesus' resurrection secures our future inheritance, and no one can take that away from us. That's in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, and 8-9. Paul also points out in many texts, Jesus' resurrection ensures the believer's afterlife. So there's a confidence in Jesus' resurrection, so too should be a confidence in what? Our future resurrection as well. So accordingly, as Peter pointed out, Christians never live for the future world alone. But Jesus' resurrection brings meaning into the present as well. 
And don't believe the adage that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. In fact, it's precisely because Jesus died and rose again from the dead that the present life is anything but <coughs> trivial or inconsequential. Yeah, no doubt. Now, as C.S. Lewis commented, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. I love that. That's a great quote from Lewis. So in the final analysis, the one thing that could destroy Christianity turns out to be the one thing that verifies everything important. Put simply, he is risen. Any questions about that, guys? Can I throw some sauce on your delicious <laughs> Yeah, brother, go ahead. Um, I know you mentioned Ben spoke on 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, so this might be repetitive, but I think it's really important to understand this part of Scripture, especially with it talking about, um, he starts off talking about the gospel, the good word that yeah. Christ has died, in, and that's the core of what we believe. But he also says, for what I have received, this is starting in verse 3, for what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And it's according to the scriptures, it's not like Christ just died because it just happened. This right. That had to happen. This is something that you know they've, they've studied for years and years, and then when it happened, it was like, for those that got called out to understand what was laid down before them, you know, it was clear as day. Um, so he died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then, this is important, he, he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So, you know, Paul's you know, recorded message here is that over 500 people yeah. experienced interacting with Christ after his death. It wasn't like it, just a couple of people. It wasn't just the apostles who were no. around right. telling the story. Right. It's a lot of people. Lot. Um, and I think another thing to take from this on the next part here is understanding how God uses people. Because um, I know you're teaching this class uh, so we can be armed with an understanding and a knowledge of the word so we can share it with others. Um, Paul ends here with, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what we believed. And with Paul saying that there, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that God doesn't go out and use the, the, the most prominent Christian person right. to, to call mm -hmm. on to, to do his will. He goes to the, to the weakest, the, the, least, mm -hmm. the least, you know, important or the person you would think would the least right. be able to do what, what God wants him to do. Um, and I think we need to remember that in our lives. You know, if, if you're having a hard time and you feel like life's got you down and, you know, you're struggling or you, you need to share something with somebody but you feel, like, unequipped, that you're perfect. That's the person God wants to use. He wants to use somebody who is unequipped, who, who yeah. isn't prepared and who isn't ready. You know, so don't be fearful. Know that God can use you and he will use you because he's going to use... It's going to be an amazing story. And it can't be an amazing story if it's... 
perfect. I know. Think about all of our adventures. What makes an adventure a cool story to tell? Something went catastrophically wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But like you, you know, who and you have to get through the mind to get to your heart and to believe. But blessed are those who have not seen. Right. And believe. That I mean, that's the gift we get is to believe not having seen. I know. And that's only given by God. Our faith alone is a gift given by God. Right. It's not something we conjure up on our own. I know. And it's and it's just so amazing to think that this whole process is entirely orchestrated and a gracious gift of God. The entire thing. I mean, you just you look at this, you're like there isn't anything, right? You try to think, and I love what you were saying, Sean. I mean, you try to think, well, why would God do this for me? Like, and you're like, okay, maybe it's because I know. Nope, it's not because you. There's nothing. <laughs> There's nothing. Like, I have no idea why all of a sudden God decided to reach into the pit of hell, fish out the slimiest thing he could find, and then pluck me out of it. I don't know. There's nothing in here that I'm doing that's worthy of that. Just by his mere grace. Yeah. No, I absolutely. And it's just, and it's so stinking cool. And um, like I said, it's just me that you have to work through the mind first in order to get to the heart. That's just how I was, I was wired. And this stuff really, it does it for me, man. Because when I can see evidences of it, like at that point, I'm able to run out to, you know, the random checker at Safeway or whatever and be like, hey, do you know Christ? And yeah, it's gonna be an awkward conversation, but it doesn't freak me out because I have more than just hope I have an absolute knowledge that this indeed happened. And let me tell you about it, because it actually happened. This isn't something that I just believe. Like, I know. That's a big difference. Right, and then comes that part that Deborah was talking about when you said that it's faith, it's that those who have faith and then and those who diligently seek him. Right. Because that seeking him is that part where you can say, I, I gotta tell you, and I gotta tell you is that part where you have that action. Yeah. I'm seeking him, and I need. Uh, I want to tell you about my God and who He is and what He did in me and how, what He can do for you. And I'm seeking Him. Don't you want to seek Him too? You know that uh, that drive because of what He's done, and you know it. You know, and and you can't help but tell somebody else. And the amazing part that I wrote down in my notes from Ben's sermon when he quoted James two nineteen. You know, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And, you know, I've preached sermons on that before in my life, too. But the crazy thing that I realized today, what Ben was talking about, do you know why they tremble? They tremble because they absolutely know who God is. You're like, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, that one's new. Because you're just thinking, oh, yeah, even the demons believe. But James is like, no, they're trembling because they absolutely know who God is. Anybody that was a God but doesn't trust Christ, um, the demons are even better off than them because they know the position that they're in. They have a fear of yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, they have a fear of God. I know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And not only is there this massive amount of proof from the day that Christ died till now, but look, because when he was reading that and he was dying according to Scripture, we didn't right. have the canonical New Testament written out yet. He wasn't, he wasn't just like Peter, nope. Peter t saying that Paul's letters are just, are, are along with scripture, the word scripture pointing to the Old Testament. 
and all the things that Christ did, all these things that lined up were all prophesied before Christ. Yeah. And then they all happened exactly according to Scripture, how they were going to happen. I know, which is just so crazy. There are. There's so many details. I mean, when you take a look, you know, in Isaiah and Psalms, when they're talking about a means of death, and they're writing about it 1,500 years before it was even invented, right. the crucifixion. Even you look at Exodus, and you know when they had, when they, when they, when God gave them what they were supposed to do um, to the to the lamb, you know, to have a perfect lamb with yeah. blemish, and to be brought before the priest and to be inspected that there was nothing wrong with him. And then you look at Christ before he's crucified, brought before Pilate, and Pilate said, "Look." There's nothing wrong. wrong. This guy, wow, yeah. he's perfect. He even sent him to Herod and said, help me out here, because I have no reason to kill this guy. There's absolutely nothing wrong. He hasn't done anything wrong. And Herod sent him back and said, I don't want him. There's nothing wrong with him here. You know? and, but just to see that, that, yeah. you know, that this is something that they've, they've done year, every year for their entire lives for generations, and then it happens. And you know, it's, it's crazy that I know. that is the perfect spotless lamb, not a bone of his was broken. Yeah. Yeah. He gave up his life. They cast lots for his garments. He yeah. was pierced in the side. Yeah. I mean, all these prophecies. Maybe maybe next Easter we'll go over all the different prophecies because there's it's like 400 yeah. different prophecies of, of Christ before it ever even happened. It's so cool. That'd be a long lesson. Sorry, guys. But it's really cool to go over that stuff. It is neat. Any other questions or comments before we close in prayer? I always thought it was kind of interesting that they didn't kill somebody else and say, oh, here's the body. Yeah, I thought about that too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so Christ must have been so uniquely recognizable that they couldn't right. replace him. Or they dared not to. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, further... It would have been a mix-up anyway because he was there. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. You know. And we have eyewitnesses. Proving, you know, his point. Yeah. Mm hmm So, um, remember, uh, I won't be back in in this class teaching until June. Um, so we'll be be preaching at big church on May one, and then once we return in June, that's when we'll start our our theology. But this class will go on. This right? class will and go on. Yep. Yep. A few different people. Yep. Did you already get those? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. And um, yeah. And if you guys want me to provide the J.I. Packer Knowing God book, I'll be more than happy to, because um, that's one that we'll reference a lot. It's a pretty easy read, but when you. Um, I don't know how we got started on this subject. Oh, it was when we were at dinner. We were talking about books that have changed us. You know, um, as far as my Christian walk, that one's a huge one. Knowing God by J.I. Packer changed me because it made God personal to me. And just the relationship aspect is amazing. And, and you guys will learn that. It, it's a cool way because when you talk about theology, especially theology proper, which is the doctrine of God, you get this huge disconnect. And I'll never forget the first statements said to me by my professor at that time. He said, God is not a frog to be di dissected, but a person to be known. So once you have this intimate knowledge, and that's our goal for going over all this theology stuff, is that you can just, it's like you know, any other buddy. The more you hang out with them, like the closer you are. 
is the same concept. I want to throw this uh, out there too. It's because I've been saying this uh, lately, is that the word believe is an awful word to use when you're yeah. talking about God and Christianity because yeah. it makes it sound like Santa Claus. Like, yes, it does. You can believe, you have a choice to like, you believe it or not. Yeah, and it's not, a, you know, when you ask somebody or talk to somebody, you know, do you believe in God? You should, it should be, do you know God? Do you right. have a relationship with God? Because right. It's, you know, it's like saying, do you believe my car's parked out in the driveway? You know, I mean, <laughs> I it doesn't matter. It's <laughs> yeah. there whether you want to believe it or not. You right. Know? And I think it's the same way with our, our walk good. with Christ. Is that it? It's a real thing. It's not It's not whether I believe it or not. Whether you choose to follow God, that's, you know, maybe a decision you can make. But yep. I, I, it's it's good. it's not that you have to believe it or not. I like that. You know? I'm going to steal that on a later. And I don't know what the better, <laughs> word, I don't know what better word there is to use than believe. Like, there's got to be a word that trust that... that Trust. I think trust. Yeah, I like trust. And, and that's what Pastor Ben talked about today. Are you trusting? Right. Trusting. Any others? All right, guys. We'll, we'll close in prayer and then send you guys on your way to enjoy Easter supper with your families. Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this gift that you did walk out of that tomb alive. Thank you, Lord. Um, I just ask that you please protect each and every one of us as we're all going our separate ways. And if we do happen to have these conversations, uh, whether it be today or in the future, Lord, we ask that you would take over our mouths at that point and just speak for and through us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.